Well, let me explain uh, here what we're going to do today for our study, because uh, what you just heard read, as you, as you probably know, is Colossians chapter 1, part of Colossians chapter 1, and uh, that, that brings me to a, a need to explain, uh, because over the course of the last few weeks, we've been going through our Advent series, thinking about different aspects of anticipating uh, the birth of Jesus, and before that, we were in 1 Samuel, uh, beginning our studies there, which is what we're going to return to. Uh, but we've got a, a little bit of a different uh, block of time here for the next few weeks at least, in that uh, this week, obviously, I'm preaching, and then next week, Josh is going to preach for us. Following that, Patrick is going to be in town, and he's going to be preaching for us again, so it'll be great to have Patrick here. And then Jason is going to preach the following week. Uh, during that time, uh, for, for one of those weeks, I'll be in, in uh, St. Louis at a class. Uh, but we've got this this week here where I didn't want to jump back into 1 Samuel because we're going to end up with another break, so I didn't want to do a kind of stutter start there again. And uh, we're also uh, right on the edge of a new year. So the question becomes, uh, as the people of God, under the Word of God, what might best serve us in terms of our own outlook uh, for this coming year and as we have this unique kind of one-off week of, of study between, uh, between regular series? And that brought me to consider the book of Colossians. Because as you know, I'm sure, the book of Colossians is unique in a, in a sense that it portrays the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ in a context uh, where the supremacy of Christ is diminished. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we face this new year, as we think about what's to come, as we wonder what's to come, really, uh, there is nothing more important for us than to comprehend with uh, great vitality the significance of Jesus. We need to see Him in His greatness. We need to understand what it means to follow Him. And a book like Colossians is a wonderful place just to center our thinking as we're, as we're uh, considering these things. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to actually, which reminds me, I need to start my timer, we're actually going to work through the whole book of Colossians. Uh, that's, that's the plan. And uh, I, think, I think we'll get pretty close. The, the stopwatch will be the authoritative determiner of that. Um, but, but we're going to try to do this well, also recognizing that it's very chilly in here, so we'll, we'll you know, not, not go forever. Um, but the idea being we're going to go through this book, and as we go through this book, obviously we're not going to be able to go into depth with everything that's going on in the book of Colossians, but, but my, my hope is that it's enough to give, give you maybe some, some homework to do as you're thinking about this new year. You could use the book of Colossians in family worship. You could use it in your private uh, study as, as this year begins, reflecting on the significance of Jesus and what we're told here uh, about, about what it means to follow Him and ultimately what it means to have rest, knowing that in Him as Colossians will show us, we're full and we're free and we're forgiven. And so we're going to come to Colossians in that way, uh, desiring that the Lord would, would refresh us in the, in the significance of the, of the bigness of who Jesus is. Um, and then next week, Josh will preach for us, and then Patrick will preach for us, and then Jason, and then we'll be back into 1 Samuel. So that's, that's, the, that's the schedule of things. But, uh, but just as we begin here, let me, let me pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll work on making some, some progress through the book. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come under your word this morning, uh, recognizing that first and foremost, your word directs us to the significance and the accomplishments and the high supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Uh, We ask as as we study your Bible together here today, and for those who are uh, joining online this morning, we ask that as we study your word, we would be moved with an apprehension of Christ in a way that brings us uh, to a place of rest, to a place of peace, and, and ultimately to a place of trust in the sufficiency of what Jesus has provided. So we ask this as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, well, we'll set the context for, for Colossians in this way. Um, at some point in your life, you've probably been told that you're not doing something well. Uh, those are always difficult conversations to have. Maybe it's in your studies as a student. The teacher comes by your desk and says to you, you know, uh, the rest of the class is, is moving forward quite well with this particular math concept. However, we're noticing that you're uh, falling behind a little bit. And so the teacher comes and tells you there needs to be a little bit more academic effort in your life with regard to fractions or whatever it is. And as they have that conversation, it immediately can make you feel, at least it would make me feel, like a second-tier student. I can feel like I was, I was maybe doing okay. I felt like, like I was in line with the group. But now I'm just, I'm just not so sure I'm, I'm very good at this student business at all. Or, or the same kind of thing can happen in the context of, of friendships. A friend maybe can come to you and say, you know, you're, you're just not spending time with me in the way I need you to spend time with me. And as a result, as, as legitimate as that kind of conversation can be, we can feel ourselves to be second-tier friends. And, uh, and that can be very troubling to us. Uh, the same thing can happen uh, in our parenting. Uh, you know, we, we see that, that there's 76 books we're supposed to read if we're really going to be a good mom or dad. And as a result, we can feel like we're, we're failing in these things and, and we're just not where we, where we ought to be. This second tier uh, aspect, uh, the second tier discouragement can set in in all kinds of different, uh, all, all different parts of our life. Uh, And it's actually this second tier kind of discouragement that is at the source of this letter to the Colossians. Because what's gone on uh, in the context of Colossae is a group has come in and they've told these Christian believers that they really need to add some more things in if they're really going to be full and complete, uh, really really, uh, vital and mature followers of Jesus. If you're really going to be a Christian, if you're really going to go in this way of Christ and have the fullness of what's, uh, what's to be experienced and, and expressed in that life, uh, well, you need to add some of these things in, they're saying, uh, to really accomplish that. And so what's happened is a group has shown up in the Colossian church, and they've been speaking in these ways, which no doubt would leave the Colossians feeling like they're second-tier Christians. Uh, they're just not doing this gospel-living thing right. And so, and so Paul comes to them uh, after Epaphras, who initially had planted the church at Colossae. Epaphras comes to Paul. He tells Paul what's going on. Paul writes this letter to them in order to, to give them the gospel encouragement they need uh, to keep going. Because ultimately, uh, what's going on for these Colossians is what's always been going on for these Colossians. And that what's offered to them in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of the gospel message continues to be enough for them uh, because, because Christ himself is sufficient. Um, but, but we have this problem going on in Colossae, and we, and we understand that this problem is going on from a few different clues uh, that are there for us in the book. Uh, we talk about this with, with regularity, but when we're reading letters in the New Testament, Colossians or, or Ephesians or any, any number of the letters, uh, we do find that they are kind of like listening into one side of a phone conversation. We've talked about this before, but this is just a helpful way to think about uh, discerning the purpose of letters as we're reading them. Uh, if you're listening to one side of a phone conversation, uh, you can oftentimes discern what the whole conversation is about. And as we read these letters, that's, that's what's going on. So Colossians, for example, uh, Paul repeatedly refers to this concept of fullness. 
of fullness. So, for example, in chapter 1, verse 25, he talks about the Word of God being fully known. In chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about reaching the full assurance of, of God's mystery. And, and, and then he says, in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells bodily in chapter 2, verse 9. Epaphras, Paul tells them, struggles in prayer so that the Colossians will be fully assured. So, so you start to hear this enough throughout the letter and you realize that as far as the side of the conversation we can hear, Paul's writing to these people, the side that we can hear, there's an indication that Paul wants to communicate there is a fullness offered in Christ that the Colossians need to grasp, which also helps us understand that must be part of what's going on on the other side of things. What must be going on on the other side of things is this group has come in and said you're not really full uh, based on just the, the, the basic following of the gospel that you're engaged in. And, and another way we know that's going on is because when we get into chapter 2, we read that some are telling them they need to add all these other things into their Christian life. They need to add in uh, these unique spiritual experiences and visions. They need to add in the observances of certain uh, days. They need to eat in certain ways. All these other things are being brought to the Colossians, uh, notably here, uh, because these false teachers have come in and told them that in Christ, it's not just that you're, you're believing the gospel, but you're not, you're not full because you haven't added these other things in. If you really want to have a full and mature expression of Christianity, uh, you need to add some things in to Jesus, which of course is a, is a common uh, concern of, of Paul's day. We know that just from reading through our New Testament. In Acts 19, for example, we read about, uh, about the seven sons of Siva. And you, you remember there how Paul's engaged in ministry in Ephesus and the seven sons of Siva. Well, they're, uh, they're traveling exorcists. And they see that, you know, Paul, he can, he can go around and cast out demons from people. And so what they decide to do is they're going to add a little bit of this Jesus into their own exorcism ministry. And so they add in some Jesus. They attempt to cast out a demon. And as if you remember the story, it goes terribly wrong for them. They run away extremely embarrassed after the whole thing. But as a result... People in Ephesus start uh, responding by burning things like their magic books. They burn their spiritual documents because these Christians are realizing it's not actually possible uh, to add Jesus in in a way we can. It's not that there can be Jesus plus this other stuff. Jesus in and of himself is the sufficient one and we can't have this other stuff going on. And so, and so we see that happening throughout the first century as Christianity is spreading. As the gospel spreads, there's this realization that we can't be Jesus plus kind of people and at the same time there is circulating false teaching that says of course the exact opposite yes you need to add all these other things into Jesus if you're really going to be full um, and so and so that's what that's what Paul's addressing here and as he addresses that in the first century we also understand that this is an ongoing uh, contemporary concern that we that we need to be mindful of it's very easy to, to add stuff in to Christianity. We can see this take place. We want to guard against this taking place. Uh, but we do, we do see it out there. It may be that you've been in the context where uh, maybe a, a gathering of, of Christians have said, you know, if you're, if you're really going to be a Christian, you have to school your children in a certain way. Or if you're really going to be a Christian, you have to make sure that this political party is your affiliation. We have plenty of that going on these days, don't we? If you really want to be a Christian, well then this needs to be added in, or that needs to be added in, or this other piece must be present if we're really going to confirm that, that you're living the, the, the Christian life to its fullest and most mature uh, potential. These kinds of things go on all the time. And so Paul's letter isn't just timely for the Colossians, but it's timely for us as we recognize this kind of thing can happen. 
which is something that C.S. Lewis illustrates so wonderfully in the screw tape letters. And I know I've read this to you before, but, but in the screw tape letters where, where screw tape is a, is a demon and he's writing to his understudy demon who's working to deceive a new Christian believer, screw tape uh, makes this comment. So he's, he says this. He says, the real trouble about the Christians your patient, this new Christian, is living with is that, it is, is that they are merely Christian. They all have individual interests, of course, but the bond remains mere Christianity. What we want, if men become Christians at all, is to keep them in a state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis, Christianity and the new psychology, Christianity and the new order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and spelling reform. If they must be Christians, let them at least be Christians with a difference. And he says this, substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. And that's what's going on here for these Colossians, and that's what we need to guard against ourselves, not least of all uh, given the charged cultural environment of our, own, of our own day and age. And so Colossians is critical for us because what Paul does here is he provides central truth about the supremacy of Jesus that ultimately leaves us seeing Him as the one we rest in and, and, and the fact that we rest in Him alone. For, for our Christian life, we have Christ. And in that is the sufficiency that we need. In Him is the sufficiency we need. And so what we'll do is we're, we'll walk through the letter here and we'll, we'll see how we do. Um, but, but if you want to follow along, I'd encourage it, at least so you had place markers as we go. You can maybe go back and revisit things for your own uh, personal meditation later on. Um, but we're, we're just going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and, and go from there. So uh, you can be watching the text. It'll be helpful. We'll move at a, at a good pace. Try to. Um, so beginning in, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, we have Paul there uh, give, giving, his, giving his greeting to this church. When Paul writes his letters, he regularly begins with this kind of greeting, and he tells them, first of all there, uh, that he is Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and then he refers to Timothy, our brother, being with him. Uh, so this letter starts with Paul referring to himself as an apostle, and we know that that Greek word um, translated apostle there means just messenger generally. It's a general word for a messenger. Anybody can be a, a lowercase a apostle in that sense. They can be a messenger sent out. Um, but in the specific sense it's used when Paul's writing like this, we also understand that it can refer to a unique and unrepeatable group of men to which the risen Lord Jesus Christ has given unique authority to mediate His revelation for the sake of building His church. That's what the apostles are in a capital A sense. There were, there were 12 of them to begin with, and then Paul describes himself as being one as untimely born. He became an apostle a little later. Um, but he has this unique uh, and, and significant place in the building up of the church according to Christ's appointment. Uh, we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where there is this special office. Uh, it's not a continuing office. There are no capital A apostles today. We know that, uh, not least of all because uh, when James is murdered at the hand of Herod in the book of Acts, there's no appointment for, for the replacement of James. There was an appointment for the replacement of Judas when the church was beginning, but then after James dies, there's no, uh, no replacement there. So, so, so we have this uniqueness there, which, which God uh, speaks about in, in, for example, Acts chapter 9, where the Lord says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. 
Um, so, so all of this just helps to set the tone for what we expect when we, when we come to a letter like this. Paul is not writing as a result of his own ambitious position in the church. He's not writing because he has his selfish purposes behind his, his work. He's not writing because he fancies himself very creative and an innovative teacher or anything like that. Uh, in contrast to the teachers who are coming into Colossae, uh, Paul is not self-appointed, but he has this authority to speak from a higher authority, namely the resurrected Lord Jesus. So, so Paul's writing this letter. He says that Timothy is with him here. Uh, Timothy's not the apostolic author. Paul's the author, but Timothy's with him. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from prison, and uh, Timothy's there supporting him uh, as, he, as he writes this letter. Uh, but we just think about that for a moment, and then we recognize that the authority represented in the truth of a letter like Colossians needs to be understood as the authority of Christ Himself. Paul is Christ's appointed messenger of this truth, which is so important to consider because uh, not only does this solidify what Paul is saying to us in terms of something that we need to give full attention to, but it also helps us frame the revelation of Scripture in a context uh, and, and cultural time uh, where things are so relative, not least of all with regard uh, to spiritual belief and morality. Um, it, it was actually almost 20 years ago. It was in February of 2002. I ran across this this week. Uh, the, the, the Barna Group published a study, and 20 years ago, uh, they, they had found that 83% of American teenagers and 75% of American adults held that moral truth depends on personal circumstances. That was 20 years ago. Uh, moral truth depends on personal circumstances. So what might be morally good for you might not be morally good for me if my circumstances are different than your circumstances. That's what that reflects. And we see now, of course, 20 years later, an enormous outworking of that with how that plays out in, in, the, in the culture of our time. But, but the point being, we live in a culture where this relativism is, is prevalent, this relativism is, is celebrated, and then we come under the Scriptures and realize we have the exact opposite of this. Here we don't have a kind of moral relativism. Here we don't have a subjectivism with regard to truth. But instead we have Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, appointed mouthpiece, the Apostle Paul, writing this letter and speaking to us about this direct objective truth uh, regarding the Christian life. And it's just a good reminder to us that the Bible is unique in the fact that it is authoritative. It's not subjective. It's not a book that can be taken uh, because we might feel like it one day, but circumstances change and we just don't think it fits the next day. No, this is an authoritative word to us from the risen Lord Jesus, and we subject ourselves to that. It, it, it's countercultural, uh, but it's what it means to, to have the revealed truth of God uh, there before us in, in the Bible. And, and that's something that we can always be reminded of, but, uh, but just the occasion of Paul's apostolic ministry is, 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 is timely for us to, to remind ourselves of this. So, so Paul, he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy our brother, and then, and then he talks about who he's writing to. He talks about uh, the saints in Christ at Colossae. Uh, so he, he lets these people know from the very beginning how he thinks about them by identifying them in some extraordinary gospel terms. He's writing to saints uh, at Colossae. Saints is that word that reflects a holy status, so it means they're purified before God. He refers to them as being faithful. So that speaks to their current perseverance, that they're obediently following in God's way. And he calls them brothers or brothers and sisters in a sense that, that reflects that, that uh, 
family bond that's there for them in the family of Christ. God's care for them. He's brought them in uh, to, to, his, uh, to his kingdom, to his people. Uh, and, and, and so all of that would have been an encouragement, especially as we think about uh, the fact that they are located in a certain way, as Paul describes here. So these, these saints uh, at Colossae, Paul locates them both theologically and geographically. He refers to them uh, theologically as saints in Christ. In other words, they're holy because of what's been done for them in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be, being holy before God, being a saint, is not a matter of my own personal merit or the things I may have accomplished, but instead sainthood, the fact that we are holy and pure before the living God, comes to us because of what Christ has effected for us. So our, our, our theological location is one of union with Jesus. That's what Paul is making, uh, making clear there. And not just that, but their geographical location is also reflected in that they're saints at Colossae. So there they are in this town of Colossae, which 200 years earlier had been a big boom town, and now it's not as exciting as it used to be. But there they are in the context of daily life, living out what it means to actually be united with Christ in this way. The reality of the practical life around them is they're married to the theological truth that they are unified with the risen Lord Jesus, and as a result, they're made holy uh, by God. So, so Paul packs all that in, and we think that's an awful lot to say at the very beginning, and, and I will say we're taking a little more time with the beginning of the letter than we will at the end, if that's an encouragement to you as you're watching your, your clock. But, uh, but, but just right from the beginning, we see that Paul is setting up things in such a way that this church will be encouraged. Because what they're being told is that they're not actually complete in Christ. They need to add all these other things if they're really going to be faithful followers. And what does Paul say? Well, in his very opening line, he addresses them as God's holy ones. He addresses them as God's faithful holy ones. They're going on in the way of Christ. And in this, uh, they, can, they can take great encouragement. And so, and so we have this uh, from the very beginning. Paul is, Paul is offering a kind word to them. And then he greets them in the way he usually does there at the end where he says, Grace to you. Uh, this letter is going to be a means of grace to them as they come to see uh, Christ for who he is. And so he begins that way, Grace grace to you. Um, and so we move from, from that greeting then, if we keep going, we move from the greeting where Paul does share things that would have been an encouragement to the Colossians. Uh, next we move to Paul's prayer for them, which also is centered on encouraging them and assuring them that Paul in his apostolic authoritative status is very much aware that these are Christian believers. Ultimately, this prayer that Paul offers assures them of that truth. And, and you can just watch this as we, as we look through this next section. It's there in verses 3 to 14 where we have um, Paul starting out by thanking God the Father that the Colossians are saved. Uh, so there's these two characteristics of the church that, that Paul knows about because Epaphras reported them to him. He says that he's heard about their faith in Christ. So he's heard that they're trusting in Jesus. And he's also heard about their love for their fellow believers. These are the two things that Epaphras reported. Let me tell you about the Colossians, Epaphras said when he came to see Paul. He said, they're trusting in Jesus and they're really loving other Christians well. This is what's true about them. Which leads Paul to the conclusion that he has there in verse 5 uh, where he says, he says that um, they have this hope laid up for them in heaven. There's this hope reserved for them. In other words, Paul is hearing about these two things going on in their Christian life together and he's saying as a result... 
I'm very confident that, you, that, you're, that you're saved, that you're secured with Christ. You have this hope laid up in the heavenly realms uh, just because of what Epaphras has told me. What has he told me? Well, he hasn't told me about all this extra fancy stuff you're doing. No, he's just told me that you're trusting in Jesus and that you're loving other Christians. You want to just start at the beginning of what it means to live a Christian life and to be faithful and express our, 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 our redemption in a way that's very practical. Here they are. I'm trusting in Jesus. He's the one I'm relying upon. And I'm loving others around me as, as Christ himself has loved me. It's a very basic understanding. But again, this would have come as an encouragement because it's not complicated. Uh, Paul's not making this, this a matter of observing diets and days and all of these things. He's simply saying, oh, look at what's true about you. And because of what's true about you, well, I, I'm confident because of this hope reserved for you in heaven. Uh, which, which, again, would have been very helpful for them. Um, and, and he goes on to say that this hope-giving word uh, that they've heard in verse 5, it, it's the word of truth, the gospel. So, so Paul is drawing their attention to this message that's already been received, which is, which is actually very important. Uh, that this isn't a new or fancy or, or flavor of the month kind of gospel. This is a message that's already come to you, he said to them. And, and, and he commends this gospel message by saying it's a message that hasn't just come to you, but it's actually gone around the whole world and it's bearing fruit everywhere, just like it's come to you. So, so just in case we think that the gospel message is, is located in a, in a small, special kind of way with one particular group and one uh, special super teaching about what it means to be a Christian, no, 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 no. Paul says the gospel, the gospel is a worldwide gospel. If the gospel you're thinking you're hearing isn't the same gospel that's working in other places around the world, it's not the gospel. Because the gospel, as it comes to us with the, with the reality of what Jesus Christ has done, if it works here, it must work there, or else it's not the true and genuine article. But he says, you heard the true and genuine article. It, it's bearing fruit with you. It's bearing fruit throughout the world. Um, and, so, and so, again, uh, they're brought to a realization that they don't need new teaching, but, but what's come to them is something that is, uh, that is uh, uh, the, the original message that they heard. They heard it from Epaphras, Paul says, who's a faithful minister, uh, and 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 uh, and that can be that can be something that that helps them with their assurance. Um, so so in the end, all of this is just a very reassuring word. He's confident of their hope in heaven, and and this is there for for very basic for a very basic uh, reason that these aspects of the Christian life are present in their life. They're loving other people. They're trusting in Jesus, and they've heard the they've heard the main truth of the gospel. Um, and then and then Paul moves from there to pray. For these believers, he he prays for them uh, in in a few different ways. As he as he prays for them, he gives thanks. You see that at the end. But before he gets to that giving thanks, uh, he talks about the He prays that they'll produce gospel fruit. He prays that they'll learn more and more about God and who He is. He prays that they'll be strengthened to keep going in God's way. And then there at the end, he talks about doing all of these kinds of things, giving thanks. And that giving thanks is sourced in the fact. That God the Father has qualified these Colossian Christians uh, to be uh, members of the dominion of Christ, the dominion of the Son, rather uh, than the domain of darkness. They've been rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And because of that, they're to give thanks. So, so there's this enormous transfer that's taken place in their life. And, and it is interesting to note how Paul calls them to live a life of gospel progress. He's praying for their progress, 
uh, but he's praying for their progress in the context of an assurance of their place already. They've been transferred to the kingdom of the Son, and in that way, they live out this life of, of, of Christian progress, of, of, of producing gospel fruit, all of these kinds of things, with the security of knowing that they're located in the, in the saving kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, and that, again, is to be a comfort to them. And it's also meant to be medicinal for them, if we can put it that way, some gospel medicine. Uh, we, we do find when we start to think about adding uh, certain pieces to our life, uh, whether, whether it be I need to add a, a new exercise routine or I want to uh, remodel this or do that, a lot of times that addition to our living, which, which can be wonderful and fine, but a lot of times it can be sourced in a kind of dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction can come to us for a number of reasons. But in our spiritual life, something that can help curb that dissatisfaction, just as it can help curb it in other areas of life, is to cultivate this heart of thankfulness. And as Paul is seeing uh, this other teaching start to trickle in there, he's able to say to them, if you're living this life of thanksgiving in Christ, thankful that he's tra- you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, well, this is going to be something central for you if you're going to progress in the Christian way. Because if I'm thankful, what happens to me if I'm dwelling in thanksgiving on the significance of Jesus? Well, uh, some other things may be brought in, but they don't, they, don't, they don't hold a candle to it. They can't be uh, brought into a primary place because my heart is full of thanksgiving for what's mine in Christ. And even as we begin this new year, that's a good reminder to us about what going forward in the Christian life looks like. It's not a matter of, of pursuing hyper-spiritual experiences or any of these kinds of things. Ultimately, going forth in the Christian life is a matter of sourcing our progress in a thankful heart that's looking back to what's accomplished, knowing that God is going to continue to provide for us. Even here, Paul says that he prays that they'd be strengthened to keep going in God's way according to God's glorious might. In Ephesians 2, he talks about that same might being the might that raised Jesus from the dead. So we're going forward in this Christian life with a posture of thanksgiving, strengthened by God Himself. And as we do that, those things that might otherwise come in and take away from the reality of Christ, well, what happens? But they're just dim. They don't work. They're, they're not what they might be because my heart is, is, uh, is centered on all that has been uh, provided for me. And so thankfulness is something uh, central there, and it's something that needs to be central in our life. Paul prays, and as he prays for the Colossians, they're, they're encouraged. He says, we're thankful you're saved, and we, we pray that your progress would continue in a way uh, that's, that's uh, gospel-centered. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, dependent on His strength, ultimately thankful because He's redeemed us through Jesus Christ. And so that, that prayer is, is instructional for them, and it's instructional for us. And then, from there, uh, Paul grounds his prayerful encouragement for the Colossians in the big truth that they need most, which is, which is what we have in verses 15 to 20, uh, which Julia read for us earlier, this wonderful, uh, huge statement about the significance and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Um, we, we have a Christ hymn, as this is sometimes referred to. There are four places in the New Testament that have these, these high and lofty descriptions of the Lord Jesus. John chapter 1 is, is a place like that. Hebrews chapter 1 is a place like that. Philippians 2 is a place like that. And, and so is Colossians chapter 1 here, where Paul tells us uh, all this significant truth about Jesus. And we're, and we're going to go through it quickly, but, but we just want to have this in our minds. Um, so if you look at verses 15 to 20 then of chapter 1, Paul tells us two big things 
there about Jesus. First of all, he tells us that Jesus is preeminent over creation or the cosmos. And then he goes on to say Jesus is preeminent in reconciliation. So, so Jesus is, is preeminent over the cosmos and he's preeminent in reconciliation, um, which, which is where, where we begin at, the, at verse um, 15 where we're told that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So right away we're told that Jesus is this unique revelation from God, and He's the firstborn over all creation, which of course can refer to order, firstborn, but it can also refer to status, as it does here. It's not that Jesus is, is it some mere created being, like maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses that might speak to us about. He's not a mere created being. No, He is God Himself, but He is firstborn in His preeminent status over all that's been made. And the reason for that is plain, that everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So, so here's Jesus in this preeminent position over all of creation, and with that, He is the sustainer of all creation. In Him, all things hold together. So as we think about the created order and the ups and downs and all of this, we recognize that over all of that, the Supreme Son is the ruler. He is the one who continues to sustain the world as it goes on from His majestic supreme position as master of the universe. That's what Paul is telling us here. And, and not just that, but he's, he's the sustainer of the church as well. So not just creation, but He's the head of the body the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. In other words, the people that God is redeeming, this group who would have otherwise died in our sin, Jesus is preeminent over that group. He's the head of the church in that He is the firstborn from the dead. So now we have firstborn referring to order, not status. Before it was status, He's the high one over everything. Now firstborn refers to order. He is the first uh, one to experience the fullness of the resurrection that He purchased for us. This is, this is who Jesus is. He doesn't just sustain creation in general. He didn't just bring everything into existence, but He's the one who is first in that eternal and full existence that we look forward to having purchased that for us Himself on the cross. So Jesus is, is preeminent in all of those ways. And then, and then from there, Paul goes on to make it clear that he's preeminent in reconciliation. He's not just the creator of all, but he's preeminent in reconciling all of creation um, to, to God himself, which is, which is important for us to see um, in that, in that uh, Jesus' reconciling work puts him in this place of authority over all things. It says, through Jesus, God is reconciling everything to himself. And as we think about this reconciliation, uh, that's, not, that's not necessarily uh, some kind of statement about universal salvation, but reconciliation, as that word is often used in the, in the context of, of Greek writing, can mean two things. It can mean submission uh, by grace, which is how we understand reconciliation as believers. That's what's happened to us. We've been subjected to God by the grace of Christ. We're now one with Him. It can also mean uh, subjection by judgment. Things can be reconciled in military terms and that those powers that are contrary to the good way of God have been brought into subjection to God, ultimately, as we'll see climactically, at Christ's return in judgment. So, so everything, there's not a 
corner of the cosmos that will ultimately be left in rebellion against God. There's not a corner of the cosmos that will ultimately be left uh, wandering away from, from God's purposes or anything like this. They'll either be subjected uh, in judgment or they will be uh, submitted by grace uh, to, the, to the redemptive purposes of Christ. And that is something that He Himself is accomplishing. Jesus is the head over all of those things. And, and we could belabor all of this and take much more time here. But, but the point is, is plain, that Jesus is preeminent in all things. And if we see Christ for who He is, then as Paul describes what goes on in the rest of his letter here, everything falls into place. And so I'm just going to make a brief comment about the rest of Colossians, and you can read it for, your, for yourself, for your studies. But we just need to see how Paul is, Paul is uh, putting things together here. We have the fact that Jesus is preeminent. Paul will go on next to speak about his ministry and what that means for his own ministry. And then he will go on from there to extend his ministry in a particular way to the Colossians based on the, based on the difficulty that they're having, which is what we get in chapter 2, uh, especially in verses 6 and on, where Paul uh, tells them that they need to keep going in the way they've been going. They need to keep going in the way they've been going. Just as you have received Christ, Continue to walk in Him. So keep going in the way you've been going because Christ is supreme over all of these things and He tells them to do that because these other things that might come in, philosophy and empty deceit, all of these other things that are being brought in in order to add in to their Christian life at the end of the day, have no value to them in their Christian life. That's where we get to at the end of chapter 2. People are coming in and saying, you need to have these spiritual experiences. You might even need to to exercise yourself in some strange, strange kind of uh, physical, ascetic practices are listed out there. Visionary realms, claims of those kinds of things. Uh, They're saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, all of this. But Paul's thesis right there in verses um, verses 6 through verse 15 is that in Christ you have everything you need. In Christ you're full, in Christ you're free, in Christ you're forgiven. You don't need to subject yourself to any of these kinds of things. And that's very important for us uh, to, be, to be focused on because it may be that in the course of our own Christian life, whether it be now or at an earlier time, people came to us and they said to us, if you're really going to be a Christian, you need Jesus plus. You need Jesus and you need Jesus and this method over here. You need Jesus and this kind of spiritual practice over here. But right there in the center of things, Paul is saying, Jesus is preeminent and in Christ, you have absolutely everything you need, including the full redemption from all your sins, forgiveness from all your trespasses and the freedom you need to walk in the new life that has been purchased for you by Christ. And so that's right there at the center of things, which is what Paul then works out for the rest of the letter. He says, this has implications for you. Because of what's offered to you in Christ, chapter 3, verse 10, you're actually being renewed in the image of God. You're not the old self you used to be. You're new now. And that new life looks a certain way. It looks a certain way in terms of how you deal with sin. You don't have to engage in ascetic practices to deal with sin in your life. No, we learn to put on righteousness and put off these things that are contrary to Christ. How do we deal with sin in our life? Well, we engage in, in the righteous counterpart to those sinful kinds of malice and anger and those kinds of things. We put on things like love and patience and all of, and all of those kind of virtues now. And, and this affects how we live our lives in personal ways, in our marriages and as, and as dads and moms and as kids. And this affects how we live out in the world as we engage in our working environments. Um, Paul talks there about, about slaves and masters, which is different then we think about slavery uh, from, our, from our immediate context. 
Slaves may be even doctors during this time. It was a part of the economic structure that, that wasn't necessarily good, but it, it wasn't what immediately comes to mind for us. Uh, but in all of this, Paul is, Paul is telling them, we live our lives because Christ is sufficient in these different kinds of ways. And you can, you can work those out maybe this afternoon, read through that and see how we live by Christ's design. Uh, one, one very notable thing there at the end is that he says, our life and witness can be thought of in a way that reflects Christ's design. Paul describes himself in chapter 4 as a proclaimer of, of the Word of God. He asks for prayer along those lines. And then for, his, uh, for the Colossian believers, he speaks to them about living a life in a way that causes other people to wonder, uh, wonder about the gospel, ask questions about the gospel. They live in a wise way so that people can be uh, considering these things. And, and in all of that, they find purpose as they live in, in, in light of what Christ has accomplished because ultimately they're shining as these lights in a world. Just as Paul goes around preaching, the Colossians go around living. And as they live, uh, they witness to the newness that's theirs in Christ. And in the end of the letter, uh, Paul lists some names off that we could go through. Uh, but at, but the, at the very least, we know that Paul wants them to know that they're not alone. Uh, they're not alone in this gospel kind of living. We're not alone in this gospel kind of living. And he ends the letter by saying, grace be with you. Grace to you at the beginning of the letter. Grace be with you at the end of the letter. In the center of the letter, what do we have but the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ? And so we can go into this new year thinking, what does it look like to set my mind on the things of Christ? What does it look like to recognize the fact that He's absolutely sufficient for me and in everything I'm totally forgiven in Him and I have the power of God to live in a way that reflects this new life that Christ has purchased for me? What does it look like for me to enter this new year relying on the mighty power of God that raised Jesus from the dead? What does it look like for me to enter uh, the ambitions and, and desires that I have knowing that there is nothing that can separate me from God's salvation plan? It's complete for me in Christ and He He's the king of the cosmos. There's no one as glorious and as high as him. And I've been united, by, united to him in faith. In all of these things, we can find ourselves moved to a place of faith in Jesus Christ in a context that can otherwise draw us away or, or, or cause us to think maybe we need to add something in. No, no, Christ himself is sufficient. And that, uh, as we as we tumble through all of that wheelbarrow dump of Colossians, uh, that is something that can be there for our meditation in this year. We can consider these things and we can ultimately be moved not just to service of the living Christ, but ultimately to the worship of the living Christ. We're thankful for what he's done and we continue to go forward in this way that he's provided. And so we're thankful to God for his word. Uh, make, make Colossians uh, maybe a part of your worship for the next week or so as you, as you consider the supremacy of Christ. And as we do this, uh, we, can, we can continue on keeping the main thing the main thing. Paul says, him we proclaim. That's Paul's ministry. Jesus we proclaim. And that's our ministry too. Jesus we proclaim. We don't proclaim self. We don't proclaim methods. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ as a sufficient one for us and for the world. So let's, let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that we would be refreshed by the bigness of what's offered to us in Christ, that we would know him as the sufficient one, and that we would rely upon him, that others would come to know him, and that while things may come in and, and uh, seek to, uh, to have a higher place in our hearts than they ought, may we live lives of thanksgiving uh, that continually keep us mindful of how significant Jesus is and what it means that we've been transferred uh, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Uh, may this be our encouragement today and for this year. In Jesus' name, amen.